I want to start out with just a, so you can learn a little bit more about me today. Uh, over time, because of my son, I have become a Star Wars fan. just want to confess that to you first thing this morning. And many of you probably, if you haven't watched Star Wars, you at least know a little bit about it. You've heard of Luke Skywalker, you've heard of Darth Vader, and I'm going to go ahead and say spoiler alert, if you haven't watched the movies, I'm going to, I'm going to really blow it for some of you, okay? So if you haven't watched them by now, though, you're probably not going to. So I'm going to go ahead and spoil the ending of, of some of the movies. So episodes one through three, which are some of the newer ones, um, that's really about the rise of Darth Vader. So you have Anakin Skywalker. He's a promising young Jedi, and we see him turn to the dark side and everything that's evil and start to build his evil regime in episode three. Well, one of the movies that my son and I watched is called Rogue One, and in the, the timeline of Star Wars, it's between episode three and four. And it's kind of interesting because it goes through the entire movie and you don't see Darth Vader. And it's like, well, man, but, you know, episode one, two, and three was all about Darth Vader, and all of a sudden, Darth Vader's not here. And at the end of the movie, the good guys, they get the information that they need to blow up the Death Star, which this is the big evil planet dissolving ship. And if the good guys are going to have any hope of victory, any hope of life, they've got to take care of the Death Star. And so they've got the information on this disc and it's transported up to their good guy's ship. And they're like, hey, this is our key to victory. And who shows up? Darth Vader. He's been silent for a couple hours. You haven't seen him. And then all of a sudden, there he appears. And he's vicious. And so a guy's got this disc. And this is, this is the promise of victory for the good guys. Darth Vader goes after him first. Strikes him down. But of course, he passes it off just in time that the next guy gets it. Then Darth Vader goes after him, and he strikes him down. Then the next guy gets it. And, and this just kind of goes on where one by one, guys are getting struck down. They carry this, this disc that contains uh, the promise of victory. But one by one, each guy perishes until finally, of course, the disc goes under a steel door that shuts. Darth Vader can't get through it. And this information makes it to Princess Leia, and she says, we've got hope. And as I think about this passage that we're going to look at today in Genesis chapter 5, this scene came to my mind because each one of these guys thought, I've got it, here's the key to victory, and I'm going to take it to where it needs to go, and then death happens. And then the next guy gets it, no, oh, this guy, he's, he's the one who's going to lead us to victory, and then death happens. And this continues to go on and on and on and as we look at Genesis chapter 5 today, as we're continuing to move through the book of Genesis, we are going to see that each man carried the hope of life and the hope of possible victory over sin and over death, but each one of them was struck down again and again and again. Each one dies, and we're going to see how death reigned after the fall today. But we're going to look at, is there any evidence of hope even way back in the beginning of Genesis, that there would be life after death, that there would be victory over death, or was this just going to be a ceaseless cycle of despair and hopelessness? Because even today, we see the same thing, right? We continue to see people die, whether it's something we see in the news or whether it's something that we experience that hits close to home in our own families. And it's easy for us to think, is there any hope? Is this just a ceaseless cycle of death and despair over and over again? Can it be broken? We're going to look at Genesis 5 today, one section at a time, and try to answer that question. 
The first thing we're going to look at today is point number one on your outline, and it's man's mixed image. Man's mixed image. Go ahead and turn to Genesis 5 if you haven't yet. We're going to be in verses 1 through 3, starting out. It says, And this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them, and he named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. So just to recap, as we think about the things that we've learned so far in Genesis, we look at Genesis chapter 1 and verses 26 and 27 and what happened there. Well, man was created in the image of God, which is what we're seeing here at the beginning of chapter 5. He's been set apart from the rest of creation. Man is the pinnacle of God's creation. He has a special ability to be able to communicate with God and relate to God in a way that nobody else in creation can, that mankind's relationship with God is absolutely special compared to everything else. On top of that, God gave man dominion over the earth. He gave him a job to do. He gave him authority that no one else had, and they had this special and perfect connection with God, and they were blessed by God. But, as we know, you don't have to go very far into the story to see in Genesis chapter 3. God tells Adam and Eve, hey, you, you're going to bear my image, I'm going to bless you, but the thing is, you're still underneath me. You're not God, and I have some things that I want you to do and not do, and if you disobey my command, then there's going to be consequences, there's going to be trouble. And so man decided to, instead of obey God and his trustworthy word, they obeyed Satan and his deceptive word. And since then, chaos has ensued on our entire planet, in our whole universe. And Paul talks about this a little bit in 1 Corinthians 13, of this shattered image. So man was a perfect image bearer of God with a perfect relationship with him. And when man sinned against God, that image got shattered, that image got tainted. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, he says that how man sees now in, in a mirror dimly, and they don't see God face to face anymore. And I would say in the same way that we represent God dimly, but not in perfection, not the way that he should be represented in our lives anymore. And this is clearly evident as we continue to move on. Ben went through Genesis chapter 4, right? And it was not a pretty picture. In the very first family, there was murder. It's like, wow, that, that got destructive fast, Right? And so we see murder, brother killing brother in the very first family. And, and man was able to achieve worldly accomplishments. If you look back at that chapter, and we see that they, they achieved a lot of things, but here was the key. It was without God. Look at all the things that we can do, but you know what? It's, it's without God. And when things are without God, it gets ugly, and things get nasty. And that's what we saw in Genesis chapter 4, but it ends with some hope. Because as man began to see how wicked they had become, there were some people who said, you know what, we need God. And in Genesis 4, uh, verse 26, it says that they began to call on the name of the Lord. And so God gives Eve another son to replace Abel, who has been killed by his own brother. And that guy's name is Seth. And he was part of this line that was going to call upon the name of the Lord, that was going to be different, that was going to stand out. And they were made in the image and likeness of God, but there was still a problem. And it talks about this in verse 3 that we just read. He was also made in the image and likeness of his earthly father, Adam. 
And so what does this mean? Well, this means he bore the life that was found in God, but he bore the death that was found in Adam. And Paul talks about this in Romans 5.12. He says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. So Seth would replace Abel. He would carry on this promise of redemption. God gave a promise of redemption to Eve in Genesis 3.15. He said that one day someone's going to come through you and your line and is going to crush the head of the serpent and is going to win the victory. So she might have thought and others might have thought, well, maybe, maybe it's going to be Seth. Maybe he's the guy that's going to carry the disc, you know, and he's going to take us to victory. Would Seth be the guy? And as we move on to our second point, we'll see that Seth was not the guy because death reigns in Genesis chapter 5. Death reigns. And when we think about death today, and, and as I talk about it right now, I just want you to think about it as this is not a normal part of life. Death is a consequence of sin. It's not something to just get used to. It's not something that's normal. It's not something that should be, but it is because of the consequences of sin and disobedience. God created a people for himself and he was going to be an authority over them. He was going to be a perfect father figure for them, a perfect parent who would always stay true to his promises, even if those promises were, were for punishment or consequence. We just had Ted Tripp come and do a parenting conference this weekend. Hopefully you were able to be a part of that. And it was challenging because he talked about, hey, here's what it looks like to be a godly parent. And as I talk with people at our table or during breaks, a lot of people are like, man, I'm not thinking so much about how to parent my kids. I'm just thinking about how far I fall short just as someone trying to seek after God. That it's a challenge. It's, it's hard. And, and as I was challenged with uh, thinking about my own parenting and, and just thinking about different rules and commands that I come up with or that my wife and I come up with for our kids, and I just think about how we're so inconsistent. You know, that this rule sounds great for a while, and how we'd like to enforce it right now, but we're tired, we're busy, or, well, maybe I'll just kind of justify it a little bit for my kids so they don't have to get in trouble because then that's going to kind of be harder on me, you know? And, and as parents, a lot of times, it's what we do. We're, we're mutable, which means we're changeable, that we're inconsistent, that we vary. And it's, it's good to be flexible, but it's not good to be mutable, especially for those that you're in authority over and we know that God is so different than us as someone who has authority over mankind, as someone who is a perfect parent. He is immutable. He is unchangeable. He is undeniable. He's absolute. And the Bible declares this over and over again. When God says that he's going to do something, he will do it. His counsel will stand. He's not going to change his mind. talks about this in numerous places. I'll read a few. Numbers twenty-three nineteen says, God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? And the obvious answer there is yes. Isaiah 46, 9 through 11, Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, a man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. 
God makes it very clear. If I have something that I want to do, I will do it. If I say that I'm going to do something, I'm going to back it up. Malachi 3.6, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. And James says in the New Testament in James 1.17, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So unlike us as fallen and sinful parents that change our mind and we're inconsistent and we don't always follow through, God is so different than that. Because when I say that this is how it's going to be, that is how it's going to be, and I'm not going to go back on my word. Mankind broke God's law. They broke his command, and he promised that death would ensue and that they would face judgment for it. And as we read this next section of 16 verses, it's easy to breeze through this and just think, ah, genealogy. But there's a phrase that stands out that you're going to hear over and over and over and over again. And I want you to think about that and to focus on that and the fact that God is true to his word. When he says something is going to happen, it's going to happen. And we see the fulfillment of that judgment right here. Starting in verse 4, Genesis 5, going through verse 20. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived, after he fathered Enosh, 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived, after he fathered Kenan, 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalalel lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. And he died, and he died, and he died. You hear that phrase over and over and over again for point of emphasis. Guess what? Each one of these guys was worthy of death. They broke God's command. God promised that there would be death. There would be punishment for that. And that's exactly what happened time and time and time and time again. You think about just the first two guys listed, and you think about Adam, and you think about how Adam and Eve sinned against God, and God covered their shame, God caused the first death to happen. It wasn't Abel. It was actually an animal that was killed so that Adam's shame could be covered with a tunic of skin. So, well, maybe, well, maybe, maybe God will change his mind with Adam. Maybe he won't hold his sin against him and, and won't bring death upon Adam. Adam died. What about Seth? Well, Seth was the one who was going to replace Abel, and he was going to begin this faithful line of people that were going to call on the name of the Lord. And, and maybe God would overlook Seth's sin, but he didn't. Because Seth died, and Enosh, and Kenan, and Mahalalel, and Jared, death reigns in every single one of them because all of them sinned, and Romans 6 tells us the wages of sin is death. They all earned death. What God said he would do, 
He did. He's faithful to his word. He does not make empty threats. He fulfills his word. He had promised death to those that would disobey him in Genesis 2.17, and he meant it. And there's a lot of theories out there as to why people die. Um, some people say, well, it's just, it's just part of life. You just have to deal with it. Uh, scientism and uh, other, and the other people in just our secular age would say we're just physical beings. And, you know, eventually just the process of evolution takes over and everything just kind of peters out and you just can't continue on and you die. You're nothing more than something physical. But the problem is, is that doesn't set well with any of us. And Solomon talked about that in Ecclesiastes 5.11. He said that God put eternity in the hearts of men. We feel like instinctively, as much as we might try to convince ourselves that death is normal, that it's a part of life, we feel like it's wrong. And we feel like that it shouldn't be. Go to a funeral. Even, even today, a lot of times people will try to say, well, it's not a funeral, it's a celebration of life. And should we celebrate someone's life at a funeral? Yes, of course we should. But it's not happy. It's not joyful. People there are mourning, they're crying, there's pain, there's a sense of loss because we instinctively feel like this is not right. Death shouldn't happen, but it is. What's going on? And the Bible tells us what's going on. It tells us why death exists. And no matter how you choose to deal with death, some people ignore it. Some people act like I'm never going to die. Some people make light of it. Some people obsess over it to maybe take the edge off of it. But whatever it is, the reality is, is that if you sin, you'll die. And the Bible says that we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God in Romans 3.23. Therefore, we're all going to die. That's the reality every single one of us has to face. So one day you're going to die. One day I'm going to die. What does that mean for you and what does that mean for me? What's going to happen to you on that day? We see it very, very clearly here in this cycle. They live and they die. They live and they die. They live and they die. And that's what happens with us and everyone around us. Well, here's what the Bible says. The first thing that's going to happen is you're going to face judgment on that day of death. You're going to stand before a holy, perfect, and just God. In Hebrews 9.27, it says, And just as it's appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. God is going to look at your life, and he's going to look at my life, and he's going to look at our life's report card and say, Hmm, how'd you do? Did you measure up to what I wanted for your life? We look back at Adam and Eve just to, to, to kind of see how this works. Well, they committed one sin, and they got the sentence of death. It wasn't what we would probably call a biggie. It was just simply God said, don't eat from that tree, and we did it. Didn't murder anyone and commit adultery. They disobeyed God one time, and they got the death sentence. James says in James 2.10, for whoever keeps the whole law, all 600 plus of them, every day, 24-7, but fails at just one point, that they're guilty as a lawbreaker of breaking all of it. So God's standard is flawlessness. God's standard is perfection. If you have not lived up to that, then you are worthy of death. And that case has been made since the beginning of mankind. We look back at history and we see people live and people die. People live and people die. People sin against God and they have earned death. God has not changed his mind on that and he's not going to. If you're a sinner, you won't escape this day of death and you won't escape God's judgment. 
he makes it very clear. That sounds pretty bleak. And you know what? It's supposed to sound bleak. We're not supposed to get used to death. We're not supposed to say, well, it's just a part of life. Everybody goes through it. Hopefully they're in a better place. That's not where we're supposed to be. It's supposed to be bleak and be like, wow, is there a, is there a real solution to this then? All of us are going to die. Is there life? Is there victory over death? Does that really exist? Can we have a sure hope? And the Bible says that we can. And God wants us to be desperate for that cure. If you don't know you're sick, then you're not looking for a cure. But if you know, I've got what I think is an incurable disease, who can help me? You're desperate for it. If you know I'm going to die and face judgment, is there an answer? Is there a way that I can get out of this endless cycle of life and death? And we're going to see in our next point, point number three, that life does exist. Life exists. Because the amazing thing about God is God is not just a God of judgment. He is a God of hope, and he is a God of grace. He gives us what we don't deserve. And just as sure as he promised death for those that sin and disobey, he promised in Genesis 3 victory over the serpent. And we don't just see this victory over death. Sometimes we think about it as a New Testament thing, but it's abundantly in the Old Testament too. We see God's hope. We see his grace. And we see it right here in the midst of death reigning. And he died, and he died, and he died. And think, wow, okay, this is, this is bleak. Is this going to continue on? Is there, is there any light of hope? And then we have this guy named Enoch. And he appears and shows us there is a way to life over death, that there is hope. This is in Genesis 5, verses 21 through 24. It says, when Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked after God, walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. So, in the midst of this life and death cycle, all of a sudden we see this guy named Enoch, and he escapes the cycle. God just takes him away. He doesn't experience death. It's interesting when you look at what Ben talked about last week, and seven generations from Adam through the line of Cain, you end up with Lamech. And if you remember him talking about Lamech, this guy was an arrogant, prideful, godless person, cared nothing for God. And that's, that's where mankind ended up seven generations from Adam through Cain. Well, interestingly enough, seven generations from Adam through Seth, we come to Enoch, a guy who seems to be the total opposite. He's humble. He's walking with God. He's filled with faith and trust in this God. And we see two stark contrasts. So what about Enoch's walk with God? What did that look like? Well, first of all, it was filled with faith, and it was filled with trust in God. We know this because the New Testament talks about Enoch a couple times. The first time it talks about him is in Hebrews 11, Verses 5 through 6. It says, By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. How did Enoch please God? By faith, not by works. 
not by being a good religious person, not by always doing the right thing. It says he pleased God by faith. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. He believed God existed. He believed God would reward him for his faith. And this makes it very clear. You, you can't please God any other way. This is the only way that you seek him. God, I trust you. I have faith that you're going to take care of my problem of my impending death and judgment because I can't figure it out. There's nothing I can do to make myself right with you. Is there anything you can do, God? He says, yeah, I can. Have faith and trust in me that I'm going to take care of that for you. That's exactly what Enoch did. And God solved his problem of judgment and death. Secondly, we see that he boldly declared the truth. He believed in this God so much, he was willing to tell the godless generation around him about this God and hopefully provide some hope for them as well. Enoch is mentioned in Jude, verses 14 through 15, as a prophet. And he lived in a godless generation. Despite Seth's Seth's line, uh, we see godlessness everywhere. If you skip ahead to Genesis chapter 6, things are pretty bleak. In Genesis 6, 5, it says that God saw that the wickedness of man was great, and the thoughts of his heart were only on evil continually. That's where mankind had ended up. But we have Enoch here who is a prophet who is declaring God's truth to other people because God meant that much to him. In Jude 14 through 15 it says, And it was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Jude interprets this to mean that not only was Enoch speaking to his own generation, but this was applicable in New Testament times, and I would say it's applicable for us today as well, that he knew God is going to judge ungodliness, that God is going to judge those that think, speak, and do ungodly things in an ungodly way, and they are going to be condemned. And he declared that message to his audience because God's word and God's truth was that important to him. I don't think it's ironic that if you look at the beginning of the book of Jude, Jude is speaking out against those who pervert the grace of God. Because Enoch knew that he was a sinner, and he knew that the only way that I'm going to be made right with God is by the grace of God, and it's through faith. Because we can't be saved any other way. It's by God's grace, and it's through faith and trust in him. It's always been this way. Since Genesis chapter 5, And before, it's always been this way. Nothing changed when we got to the New Testament. It's always been by faith, and it's always been by God's grace. So in the midst of this cycle of death and seeming despair, Enoch shows us there is a way to life. It's by God's grace, and it's through faith. There's no other way. And fourthly, at our last point, we look at God's grace. God's grace God's grace is the core of the gospel, and the gospel is the theme of the Bible. If somebody tells you, well, I don't really see God's grace, I don't really see the gospel until you get in the New Testament, say, hey man, Genesis chapter 5, check this out. Look at Enoch here. He's a picture of God's grace. He's a picture of how we can get out of this death and judgment. It's by faith. He's a pattern for us. In the rest of the passages we continue, we're actually going to see more of a picture of the fulfillment of God's grace in this story. 
Back to Genesis 5, starting in verse 25, going through verse 32. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Different Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and, after, and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son, and he called him Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. We can see God's grace also in Enoch's son, Methuselah. He is the oldest man that ever lived in the Bible. If you ever do Bible trivia, this is a good one to know, right? Methuselah, oldest man ever, 969 years. And do you know when most scholars think he died? It was the year of the flood that he died. And interestingly, most people think that his name meant one of two things. That his name itself meant, when he dies, judgment. Or, when he's dead, it shall be sent. Methuselah was a walking testimony that God was going to judge the world with the flood. His life was a testimony to that. You might say, okay, well, I, I thought we were talking about God's grace. You're still on the judgment thing. Well, think about this. Why would this guy live longer than anyone else in history? Almost a thousand years. Well, I think it's because of God's grace. Because God was patient, waiting for man to repent. He's like, I'm going to give you a longer period of time because I care that much, because I'm that patient, I'm that gracious and merciful. I'm going to give you even longer to repent of your sin, to turn toward me in faith like Enoch did. Peter talks about this patience during this time of extreme wickedness and evil. It's in 1 Peter 3, 18 through 20. He says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the, the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. God's grace is on display in his great patience with sinful man and his wickedness. Why was he so patient? Why, what was he waiting on? He was waiting for them to repent. And you think about it, even in the last hundred years, Noah's building this boat the size of a football field on dry land. We're like, hey, what are you doing? Well, God's going to judge the world, and uh, he's going to send a flood, and you should repent and turn toward him so you can be saved from this judgment. <laughs> That's crazy. I'm going about my life. So not only was God patient with them for a thousand years, but even the last hundred years, he was that much more um, clear that his judgment was coming. Second Peter talks about God's patience here as well. Second Peter 3, 9 through 10. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. 
So God's judgment was coming back then. It was coming in a flood. The relief that Lamech declared would be found through Noah was the same relief, really, because Hebrews 11 talks about Noah and the faith that he had, as well as the same relief that Enoch found. It was through faith in God. God can handle this. He can take care of my sin problem. He can take care of my impending doom and judgment. He can do it, and I believe that he can by faith. So as we think about this chapter and we think about Genesis chapter 5, death has continued to reign, hasn't it? And, it? and it still doesn't sit well with us. People die that we know, that we love, that we're close to, and we still feel like this is not right. Something is wrong here. Something should be different. And we too, when we look at our own lives, we know that, you know what, I, I sin too. No, I'm, I'm not flawless, Andy. I'm so far from it. I, I deserve judgment. I deserve death. I deserve judgment from this perfect and holy God. One day we're going to die and we are going to be judged for our sin. And it's sure because God does not go back on his word. What he says he is going to do. And it's coming. It's coming for each and every one of us. So my question for you is how are you going to stand up under God's judgment? Because if you're saying to yourself, well, it's, don't you know I'm a member at Cape Bible Chapel? I'm here all the time. Don't you know I'm a Bible study leader? Don't you know what I do? I help old ladies across the street. I pay it forward. I do all this stuff. Don't you know what? I'm, I'm a good person. Well, at least I'm better maybe than the next guy. Doesn't that count for something? Say no. Not in God's book. It doesn't. Are you flawless? You're not. Then you're going to face judgment before God for that. So how do, you, how do you escape that? Well, we see in this passage today, you escape by faith. You escape by the grace of God. And we have even a clearer picture of that than they did back then, right? We see ultimately, how did God save us? He saved us through the cross. He saved us through the flawless one who stood in our place, who said, you know what? I'll take your condemnation. You deserve it. I'll take your judgment. You deserve it, but I'll take it. Put it on me. I'll die the death that you deserve. I will do that for you because I am a gracious Savior. Again, what did Peter tell us in 1 Peter 3, 18 through 20? For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. <clears throat> being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Christ was willing to trade places. What did he get, 2 Corinthians 5.21? He got our unrighteousness. We got his righteousness. What a trade. Why would he do something like that? Because he's a God of love, and he's a God of grace. That's why he would do something like that for sinners like you and I. That's why he would provide a way of escape for us. We don't deserve it. We never will. But he's provided it for us. And what does, what does he ask? What does he require of you? You accept it by faith. Well-known passage, Hebrew, or, uh, I'm sorry, Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works. There's nothing that you could do to earn this. If there was, then you could boast. But it says at the end, it's so that no one can boast. You won't be able to boast about, hey, look what I did. I figured it out, how to get outside of God's judgment, how to overcome death, how to find life, how to find victory. No, you won't. You can't. Only God has figured that out for you, and he says, trust me. Trust me. 
And for those that by faith accept Christ and his work on the cross, for them they will escape that impending doom. They will escape that judgment. And they'll be singing not their own praises, but his praises for eternity. I want to encourage and challenge you today, and I don't care how long you've been here or sat in this pew, if you don't know Christ by faith, then you don't know him. You do not have God's grace covering your life. And there's nothing but death and judgment to look forward to, and it will happen. God has said it will happen, and he has guaranteed that it will happen. So I want to beg and plead with you today, put your faith, put your trust in Christ and in Christ alone. Let me pray. Lord, as we think about death, and we see so many people in this passage today that die, we we don't like to think about it, God. We don't like the seriousness of it. We don't like the weight of it. It's not fun or enjoyable to think about or to discuss But it is as sure as the sun rising tomorrow, people are going to die. One day we are going to die and your word makes it clear you have given us this warning that our sin, what we've earned for our sin is death and an impending judgment before a holy and a perfect God. And I pray this morning that you would stir our hearts for those that need their hearts stirred, that are still trying to find other ways. Stir their hearts, God, and help them to know that it is by faith in you and the grace that you have provided through Christ and what he has done for us on the cross, obliterating our sin problem, that they would put their faith and trust in that and nothing else. Lord, I pray you would stir our hearts. God, if we already have done that, may we be that much more thankful May we be that much more grateful that you would go through and put your son on the cross on our behalf. There was nothing so lovely about us that we deserved anything like that, but instead, the ugliness of our sin is what got him up there. We are so thankful for the love and the mercy that you have shown to us that we continue to to bask in each day and that we will continue to be in awe of for the rest of eternity. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.